Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. Forty years ago today, an unspeakable tragedy occurred. Numbness, despair, guilt. It was the people who felt the pain after this tragedy happened. What occurred in Jonestown was murder. It was a mass murder. Welcome to Episode 7 of The Truth About True Crime, a podcast series looking at some of the most shocking crimes of our lifetimes through a whole new lens. I'm your host, Amanda Knox. In the previous episode, we recounted the terrifying events that happened in November of 1978. In this episode, 40 years after the massacre in Guyana, we'll hear from survivors about what happened in the aftermath and how they continue to deal with the massacre and its stigma in their daily lives. This episode also features audio from the 40-year anniversary memorial of the Jonestown Massacre, at Evergreen Cemetery in Oakland, California. To go even deeper, watch the four-part docuseries Jonestown, Terror in the Jungle, currently streaming on Sundance Now. Download the app or visit sundancenow.com and start watching. Here with me today via Skype, we have Jeff Gwynn, author of The Road to Jonestown and executive producer of the docuseries Jonestown, Terror in the Jungle, Jim Jones Jr., the adopted son of Jim Jones, Jordan Vilches, a former member of the People's Temple, and Grace Stowen, who defected from People's Temple in 1976. So I want to kind of back up to the aftermath, but like the immediate aftermath, and particularly how the media treated all of you in the immediacy of the tragedy at Jonestown. You know, I have my own experience of being chased by paparazzi and and having crazy stories written about me and being in a public eye that I did not ask for. And I wanted to see what that experience was like for you guys. I made sure to say I did not want to talk to anyone about who I was, what my connection was. I was quiet about that. I did not want to have any kind of confrontation at all. And so after those interviews or interrogations, I just went on with life and tried to heal in my own way and move on with all of the the range of emotions that I had. So I think that if I had opened up, I, I don't feel like the kind of reception that I would have gotten would have been good. 
and I wasn't in a position emotionally to deal with it. Sure. Grace, uh, how was it for you? The first thing I remember is when we got back, the Phil Donahue show wanted me to go on, and I, I didn't want to. And so Phil Donahue came on the phone and actually spoke to me, and he said, please, he said, we need, you know, so that people could understand, you know, we need to hear from somebody that was there that had been a member so they could understand. And so I agreed to go and actually uh, Holly Morton, who was part of the Human Freedom Center with Jeannie and Al, she was never a member. I was afraid to go alone. And so she went with me. And I was actually on that show with Rick Cordell. He had defected, um, I don't know how much uh, sooner. And uh, we both went on and tried to explain it to the best of our ability. And so we were treated, I thought we were treated fine, because again, we were defectors. Right. We weren't survivors, per se. So the only time I ever got a bad, um, maybe at the Phil Donahue, I was in the hotel and I opened up the paper and there's this article about what a horrible person I am. And I contacted the paper and the uh, person that wrote it. And I'm saying, you know, Jim murdered all these people and yet I'm the bad person. Hmm. I mean, one aspect of it that was really hard for me post getting out of prison was that people wanted to know immediately what I thought about what happened. And it was like that was the only opportunity that I had. You know, I didn't know if I was ever going to have an opportunity to explain or give my side of the story. And what's so problematic about that is in the immediacy, like you don't even have time to comprehend it for yourself, much less the rest of the world. Did you feel like you somehow were responsible to give answers that you didn't even have yet? Yeah, and that's why I was—I didn't want to talk to anybody because I was still trying to figure everything out for myself. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't going to be able to have an articulate conversation with anyone. Mm-hmm. And the thing that bothered me about the media was that they wanted to know mm-hmm. not anything about how I felt personally, what were some of the attracting factors, no, it was just all about the sensationalism, and you can probably speak to that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> those were the French press. They were. I, we kicked them out. We said leave for what they wanted. Jim, does that sound about right? The true story. Come on, they just want to find a little bit of information that strengthens their story. The press has a preconceived idea of what caused the horrific event. Jim Jones is crazy, and the people were crazy. Yeah, what were they asking? You know, like, what was their break the ice question? They wanted to know about the sex in the church, Jim Jones and sex with his parishioners. Ah. Talk to us about the sex, the sex. I think we ended that, we, we kicked them out. The only other thing with the press was when they said, they would read us the list of potential survivors if we would give them an interview and we closed the door on them. And that was in Berkeley. I don't know who the press was. God, that I cannot even believe. I mean, I believe you. I totally believe you. It's just like, oh my God. So, okay, it seems kind of inevitable that the media was bound to misrepresent what happened because they didn't ask the questions. You know, like... How do you begin 
to mourn. A year ago, I had this vision of bringing us all together and celebrating the 40th anniversary, but it's really a celebration of life because every one of you here today has taken every day of those 40 years and chose to live the commitment and tenets of being kind to your fellow man. And that's why I want to celebrate today. I want to acknowledge that we've lost many of our loved ones, but I want to celebrate life. Jordan, can you join us? I joined People's Temple in 1970 when I was 12. I moved to Redwood Valley and lived with my sister Diane, her partner Pat, her two children Dove and Jamal. At 21, I returned from Guyana, but Diane, Pat, Dove, and Jamal had each died. Since my return to start life over, there have been three major questions that I have leaned into over the years. The first one is, how do we individually and collectively move forward in a positive way after tragedy? The second one has been, how will I articulate the complexity of people's temple to the world? And third, how do I best honor those who died? Throughout the years, a couple of decisions I made helped me answer these questions, giving me a tremendous amount of relief and a way to move forward. I decided that I was going to be empowered by my past rather than be crippled or destroyed by it. Being empowered and owning the past made it essential that I speak with people in daily life about the temple when it was appropriate. But honestly, that took at least 20 years before I could do it with any kind of confidence. It was also beneficial to journal and write. Answering questions of students who've contacted me and others seeking to understand and showing up for interviews and documentaries has been therapeutic as well. All of this has enabled me to continue to make sense of the temple story and articulate it when it was necessary. After 39 years, there was still another thing that was important that I needed to do. I needed to go back to Guyana to see and be in the space that had once been Jonestown, the place I had left so long ago. I needed to pay respects to the people who passed. And in March of this year, I had the opportunity to do so. In closing, I'd like to say that when I think of honoring everyone who died, I try and imagine what they would want. I believe that what they would want is that we, survivors, friends, and loved ones, be happy and fulfilled. I also feel that they would want us to be aware of the tremendous, and I really mean tremendous, value of our connection with one another. And that that connection between us remain loving, sustaining, and above all, enduring. Thank you. Grace, what about you? How has mourning your son been? And have you ever been able to think about your son just for him and not, you know, wrapped up in the legacy of Jim Jones? 
Um, you know, I don't know if you know this, but a lot of the children are redistributed in the church to other families. So I forgot how young John was when he was taken from me and put in the care of Barbara Cordell. Luckily, I adored Barbara. She was very sweet, very kind. So even in the church, I really didn't get to have John. And then I kind of felt my saving grace with all of this was the fact that I defected with someone that had been there. So I never had to explain I mean, if I said something, he knew what I was talking about. I think that helped a lot for me to get through all of this. This is for both of you, Grace and Jordan. With all the tragedy, with all the pain, is there any moment when you allow yourselves to realize that as surviving members of People's Temple, with all the good things that the temple did over the years, that because of you, hungry people were fed Children who were abused and afraid found homes and love. Children were educated. There are undoubtedly, for all the tragedy that we've talked about today, I have met people in Indianapolis, in San Francisco, in Redwood Valley, who say, if it wasn't for People's Temple, I wouldn't even be alive. Do you ever allow yourselves just for a moment to realize the good that you did? Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think back on the feeling and those first days um, having joined the temple, it was, it was so unusual and it was so dynamic and there was so much compassion and passion that, yes, I, I, I do. The potential, it was so great. The thing that bothered me the most is that Jim Jones and People's Temple, we could have gone down in history as one of the greatest, finest groups and yet why Jim went the way he did, I mean, who knows, but there was so much potential there. We could have, could have been it, you know? We really could have. And I think that- It was there, it had it. Yeah, like Jeff is saying that there were things that were accomplished and in spite of the dysfunctional aspect, there were people that were helped. And, and just the fact that everyone was accepted, there were people that were shunned by their family because they were gay or lesbian and mm-hmm. that was not a problem in the temple. The next speaker we have today is Laura Call. When I reflect on my nearly nine years in People's Temple, I feel that it was both one of the highlights and one of the deepest traumas of my life. When I was in People's Temple in both California and in Guyana, I felt committed to an idea. I thought I was making a commitment to building a different world based on principles. I believed in equality, dignity for all, and integrity, and I was very foolish and naive. The people I love most in the world are people who somehow decided that it wasn't enough to live a life of privilege or of an individual plan. Those are the people I met up with in People's Temple. Those are the people who enriched and continue to enrich my life. So, I regret that we're not all here together today. Too late, I realized that I had stopped my own critical thinking while I was in People's Temple. The dream that I thought I was living was really only a dream, not a reality. So in retrospect, I see that I ignored many of the flags that were obvious. Back in about 2000, I remember having an insight that helped me. 
I was sitting and feeling that I was surrounded by those from People's Temple who did not survive. We were in a conversation somehow in a room, and the message I received was just to move forward. For me, being angry at the past is paralyzing, and I made a choice not to go that route. And I live my life fully. My wonderful husband of 36 years, Ron, and my inspirational and gifted son, Raul, have supported me on my journey and continue to encourage me every single day. Last March, my family and I returned to Guyana with Jordan and some other friends. It was an important trip, not for closure, but for acknowledgement of what we had, what we lost, and what price Guyana paid. In a way, the trip back gave voices to the voiceless of Guyana, which had not really been recognized for 40 years. I'm grateful to be here with you today, to share these memories with you, and to share this space as we honor our lost friends and family. I feel like our presence today is again to give voice to the voiceless. I can't imagine being anywhere else. Thanks a lot for coming today. Thank you for being here. Jim, I want to know what it has been like for you to be constantly asked to apologize for your father. You, you know something? When I first came back, I started going by James Jones. Mm. But when I was the director of cardiopulmonary department down at San Mateo, the, the district that Leo Ryan was from, and they had to put my the acronyms or the... Um, the educational components behind my name mm-hmm. to put on the door. And they cut my name down to Jim mm-hmm. from James. And I, I remember walking up to my door and seeing Jim Jones, you know, mm-hmm. director of respiratory therapy and uh, all my clinical credentials behind my name. And I thought, oh my God, I got to change this. Oh. You know, I, I can't be Jim Jones. But then I stopped for a moment. And I paused and I went in my office and I thought, hold it for a second. There's a lot of pride in being Jim Jones Jr. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm the first African-American child adopted by Caucasian parents. You know, yeah. I have raised my kids who are biracial to, to have the cultural awareness of both cultures. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, you know, I thought about what I, what I have accomplished or what I set out to do as a parent mm-hmm. from my upbringing. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, there's pride in being Jim Jones Jr. Mm-hmm. And from that moment on, that, that's who I've been. Mm-hmm. I said this, I, you know, I was speaking at an African-American church, Baptist church, a couple of months ago. And it, I, don't, I don't know where it came from, but I said, a child cannot pay the sins of his father. Mm. And somehow that got into my head, and it's true. I can't pay the sins of my father. I can only identify them and make sure they don't happen in, in our community anymore. This next guy, I love him a lot. He's been in my life longer than anybody else I know. And I, I'm just happy he's here. He's going to share it with us today. Thank you, Stephen. You're my 
This is not my thing. I don't like uh, getting in front of folks and talking. I guess that's at least one way I'm not like my father. So um, I want to tell you about what it's been like to be with you folks in the last 40 years and what it's like to be here with you now. But I need to begin by offering in contrast my perspective on life in the temple in Jonestown. Please forgive me for speaking in general terms. I speak of us as a movement, if we were such a thing, as a community, and that we were for sure. There were, of course, many individual exceptions. We meant well, of that I'm certain. Nearly all of us would rather have helped than done harm to have made this world a much better place. And yet so many of us helped dad and his circle do great harm. We championed all the right causes, but it seems to me that we were more against than we were for anything. We hated hatred and we were bigoted against bigots. We wanted to rule the rulers and torture the torturers. Everything and everyone but us was wrong, wrong, wrong. In the documentary, they often show a sign that was hanging up in Jonestown, one that said, those who don't remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And I think that the documentary filmmaker was trying to convey that direct message of like, hey, Jonestown happened. A lot of people today don't remember it, so it feels just like a fact. It feels like a, you know, a data point. It doesn't feel like a present real thing. And so people need to be reminded of it 40 years later. And I think the other moral of that is, is it's almost like a question of whether we, the greater society, who did not experience directly Jonestown, have ever really remembered Jonestown because have we ever remembered it correctly? Why have we always thought there are some people who would kill themselves for a cause and then there are the rest of us? And I was wondering if you had anything to say about what you have learned and if that statement means anything to you. Well, I actually don't believe in demagogues. Hmm. Let's be honest here. I, I, I'm gonna be very candid here. Yeah. When a demagogue takes your worst part of your nature and brings that to fruition, there's nothing good can happen from that. Now, Jim Jones was unique because he took the best part of your nature, mm. but he still became a demagogue. The end will always be destruction. You know, the end will never be blessed because you're giving up individuality when you believe in the demagogue. Mm. And what's scary is 40 years later, we're living in a society that we are ran by a demagogue, and that's scary. Yeah. We were not a good organization that turned bad, whatever those things are, to any individual or a group that lost its way. We were ruled. From the very beginning, we were ruled. Not led, ruled. Subjugated and manipulated by a narcissistic, paranoid, bitter, disillusioned, delusional, and frequently ridiculous man, who was, as far as I can tell, pretty disturbed before he made it out of his childhood. Our good works were often a means to an end, 
And while most of the good people performing those good works were doing it from their hearts, the people directing those works were too often primarily aware of how it looked and who it would impress. I mean, come on, our credo was the end justifies the means. Never, the way I see it, never has there been a more pernicious, a more toxic belief. I would argue that the means justifies the end, but never the other way around. So do you feel that like, first of all, is it possible to forgive him? And I think that that's a, that's a question that, you know, people out in the world can ask themselves, but like you personally, privately, do you forgive him? And if you do, is it because he's your father and you only have one father? Or is it important for you not to forgive him? Because I know that you do so much work to be there for the people who are hurting because of what happened. Where are you in there? You know, I think the question you asked me is, no one's ever asked me that, first of all. So I applaud you for peeling back the onion deep enough to ask me, oh my God, I've never thought about this. And my only answer I can give you is, I had to forgive Jim Jones because I had to forgive myself. Mm. I didn't speak up when I should have. You know what I mean? It's the Episcopalian in Germany that when the Polish people got pulled, pulled off the concentration camps or were enslaved by Hitler, he didn't speak up, oh, they're in Polish, you yeah. know, it's, it's not me. It's when the Jews were pulled in the concentration camps or the gays were pulled away, ah, you know, being gay is immoral, so I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. The Jews have everything, and, and they're controlling the prices for, for my oppression. Mm-hmm. But when the Nazis came after him, there was no one to speak up for him. Mm-hmm. So should he have not spoken up earlier? And I think that's where I'm at Mm. in my evolution. When the tragedy hit me, where I lost my wife who was pregnant, I lost my mother, I lost 27 members of of the Jones family. Mm. Why didn't I speak up? But you did in in a way, like there was a moment where you said no and you had... Can you tell me about your anti-suicide pact and what it meant for you? Oh my God! To say no. You, you, you heard that? Yeah. Oh, you heard about? Uh, we we call it the Band of Brothers. The Band of Brothers is Stephen, myself, mm-hmm. Tim, Johnny, and Mark Cordell. And there's a couple other people in there, but we're talking about the the main people who I've stayed in contact. Mm-hmm. And Johnny and Tim just came back from Jonestown from identifying bodies. And I'll tell you, I was really hurt that I wasn't picked out of the Band of Brothers to go. But you know something? I don't have that Kodak memory in the back of my head. Mm. And and I'm so grateful that I don't. Mm -hmm. But we were in the back of the Georgetown complex. And the Band of Brothers sat around. I think Mike Touche was in, in this too. And we said to each other, do you know how we feel right now? Do we know how that loss feels? We can't do anything to ourselves to make us go through that again. Mm. And you know something? There's been moments in all of our lives that that concept has crossed our minds and that pact has been, it has been kept in fruition. No more death. 
no more death. I mean, last year, last year I was in the hospital with endocarditis. I had to be in solitary confinement for four weeks prior to my surgery because they, they had, I mean, half of my heart valve was gone. My blood was riddled with bacteria. And I remember Stephen and John Cobb, they were always there to visit me. And they were going to go attend the Jonestown anniversary, 39th anniversary. Mm-hmm. And I had tears in my eyes. I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to make it, guys. And John Cobb told me, he goes, don't worry. You'll be there next year. Mm. And after the surgery was when I had the vision doing this 40th year anniversary program, a celebration of life. And I got to tell you, we had a very supportive lead donor on this project of renovating the memorial. But the other cost items that we needed to do as flowers, the tents and chairs, it all came from the Band of Brothers. Mm. You know, 40 years I counted on, and I'm counting on now too. My words could never do justice to the beauty and power of black and white and yellow and red, every skin color imaginable, dressed in every other color imaginable, swaying and bumping and thumping to something got a hold of me gospel and a good dose of sooty and sensuous soul. All our barriers crumbled, our lines rubbed out. You forget who's who and who you are. We'd mix and melt and enter the music as it entered us. No past, no future, no thought stood a chance. Utter belonging. With some of the most lovely, remarkable people I've ever known. Oh my God, I had no idea how much I loved those people until I lost them. And that belonging, that sense of great purpose, it's hard to let it go when every inch of you screams at you to do so. What do you and the other survivors of People's Temple, like, what is your legacy? Oh, my legacy is my children. Hmm. I have no legacy, Joan. You know, it's interesting. I told my wife, I said, after this 40th anniversary, once I walk up that hill from the memorial, I'm done. She goes, oh, you'll never be done. I went, no, I'm done. And she goes, why? Why this time? I said, because I think I've said everything that I can say. I've shared everything that I can share. My sister, who never admitted, even to her children, until her deathbed, that she was Jim Jones's adopted daughter. Mm. You know, everybody deals with things differently. But I always respected her wishes. And she said, she told me, I don't know if your way is right or if my way was right. But at the end of the day, how many looky-loos driving on the freeway are going to slow down and not really take notice? They just want to find out a little bit to fill in those data points. You know, you talked about that. They have the preconceived idea of what caused this crash. Mm-hmm. And they only want to take in that certain amount of information that justifies or strengthens that idea. Mm-hmm. For 35 years, I've tried to share the other side. There are so many others now opening up their personal story. Some of it is a little revision of history, but you know something? After 40 years, maybe that's what was needed. I don't know. Hmm. You're telling your truth. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. I like that. I'm telling my truth. I have felt from you, my friends, something that I've come to believe, that there can be many different perspectives on something, and all of them can be correct in the moment they meet. 
I also believe that if we truly feel that way, if we want and try to fully understand other perspectives before, or God forbid, even instead of, trying to make others understand our own, if we're all that open and excited by our differences, if they truly are differences, we can conceive of or even create something none of us could conceive of on our own. And I felt like I have tilled that kind of rich soil when I have been with you. And we've seen eye to eye on a lot as well. And we just refuse to take any of it too seriously. So how do we feel to me? At times tentative, always forgiving, positive, playful, loving, and on the mend. I have something I say to my magnificent daughters as often as they can stand it. <clears throat> the same way every time. I love you with all my heart, forever, no matter what. And God loves you more, but not much. <sighs> of course, I don't always feel this way, and I sure as heck don't always show it. But I know at my core, it's absolutely true. And I pray that Asia Moon and Kaylee Nita and Jaden Rose know it's true too. I pray that they know that they saved my life, that without them busting into it, this tired and broken heart would have died a miserable death years ago. And without their absolute insistence that I keep my heart open, I would not have gained an inch on the path to wholeness and happiness. And although from a human perspective, I must reserve all my heart for God and those amazing women that I am blessed to call my daughters, from the deeper place in which I'd like to reside, the same goes for my temple family. Every one of you, gone, remaining, and new. And yeah, my healing and growth demands that I include dad too. Thanks. Truth is built on trust. Trust in a system, in human nature, in ourselves. To someone looking in, the truth comes with a perspective. It's subjective. And yet, you need all angles of the truth to capture what truly happened. To my guests, Jeff, Jordan, Jim, and Grace, and to all of my other guests throughout this season, thank you for giving me not just your time, but for trusting me to help tell your story. It's all too often that individuals in these situations are mischaracterized from the outside because people don't know the whole story. I know from personal experience that tragedies, stories, Events like these can be twisted into surface-level headlines that never really reach deep enough to uncover the foundations of who, why, how. There's a sensationalism in the media storm of the moment that's hot today and gone tomorrow. And it's important for us as a society of media consumers to take a step back and try to learn what we can about all sides of a story before we make uneducated snap judgments. 
True crime is more than just bad things happening to good people. It's a representation of who we are as human beings, showing us the evils and perils of what we're capable of. We see headlines that create reactions, and we're too busy in our own lives to dig deep enough to uncover the true story. And so we allow our reactions to get amplified a thousand times over, while we forget that these are people going through turmoil, dealing with real-life pain that will stick with them for a lifetime. The Jonestown Massacre was a terrible moment in our history, and I hope my journey with you has helped shed a light of sympathy on the survivors of People's Temple, real human beings that were involved in this unfamiliar, powerful, tragic project. Thank you so much for listening. And make sure you stay subscribed so you never miss an episode of the upcoming seasons of The Truth About True Crime.